Hey, welcome everyone. I'm Don Newton, host of Open Air on KPOV 889 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing Wednesdays at 5 p.m., Open Air is a weekly one-hour entertainment talk show featuring conversations with authors, local youth, entertainers, sports figures, and more. She's a real woman with a real life. She's someone you can relate to. Open Air with Don Newton. You don't know me. You don't know me. I can hold fire in my hand, call the rain and ride wind. Hey, welcome everyone. This is Open Air. I am your host, Don Newton. Today's guest is author Greg Noakes. He's here to talk about his book, Breaking Chains, Slavery on Trial in the Oregon Territory. Breaking Chains tells the story of slaves brought to Oregon from Missouri in the mid-1800s. It is told against the background of the national controversy over slavery that led to the Civil War in 1861. Greg Noakes, he is the author of Breaking Chains, Slavery on Trial in the Oregon Territory. First of all, thanks for coming in during your vacation while you're here in Central Oregon. Well, thank you, Don, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on open air, and this is an appropriate time to be here talking about Oregon's own sad story of racism. Let's talk about this book and give us a little synopsis of what this book is about. Well, the book is about slaves in Oregon, and I had not realized until I was pointed out to me that uh, one of my ancestors brought a slave out from Missouri in 1853. I was not pleased to hear this. Now, I'd written an earlier book called Massacred for Gold, Chinese in Hills Canyon, which was very well received. So I wanted to do another book. And so chatting with my brother, he said, why don't you write about Reuben Shipley? And I said, who was Reuben Shipley? And he said, Reuben Shipley was a slave brought to Oregon by one of our ancestors. And so this opened the door to the story. One, I'd not realized that there was any, any slave background in our family, nor had I realized there'd ever been slaves in Oregon, black slaves. And so that set me off on the story of this book. Well, and also in the story, it, it talks about when brought to Oregon in 1844, Robin and Polly Holmes and their children were promised freedom by their slaveholder, is Nathaniel Ford. He was pretty an influential type of guy. He was. He was influential in Missouri. He was a member of the legislature, four-time county sheriff of Howard County, had a number of slaves, a lot of property. And then when his econ- the economy went bad and he lost a lot of his property and some of his slaves, he moved to Oregon and brought six slaves with him, including five members of the Holmes family. And the sad part of it is he'd left behind three of the Holmes children. He'd sold them to other slaveholders. So this became the focus of the book. While I do talk about Reuben Shipley, the Holmes story is really the compelling story of the book because Robin Holmes, an illiterate black slave, later sued his uh, former slaveholder owner for the freedom of his children and won. And, and when I was reading in your book, too, that this is the only slavery case ever adjudicated in Oregon courts. That's right. Interesting that there was even one, though, right. isn't it? And that that trial started. Holmes took Ford to court. Um, that was April 16th, 1852, and they finally got a ruling on it July 13th, 1853. That was an interesting, the, the case itself, because there was a lot of delays, Weren't sure which way this was going to go a lot. There was some political and maybe some underhanded by Mr. Ford. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Ford was had just been elected to the territorial legislature. He was a very influential guy in Oregon. He'd been nominated to be chief judge of Oregon by the provisional government, although he turned it down. But that shows how important he was. 
And, of course, he had slaves. And Oregon had, it needs to be mentioned that in 1843, Oregon had a law against slavery, but it wasn't enforced. And there's probably as many as 50 slaves in Oregon, maybe more than that. Nobody was keeping, keeping a record of these. But Ford had released Robin and Polly Holmes' parents had given their freedom in 1850, but decided to keep their children. And so this is why Robin Holmes sued Ford for the freedom of his children. And the amazing thing is that he won an illiterate black slave suing a very prominent member of the territorial legislature and prevailing. And this was because of the fourth judge who heard the case who was newly arrived in Oregon. Yeah, that judge, let's see, George H. Williams, the chief judge, is the one. Because in right. reading in the book, he, he didn't have enough time to get to know everybody. Right. He just read the case and ruled on it, as opposed to, which reading in there as well, he talks maybe there, maybe he should have, if he had gotten to know or maybe had some influence or maybe found out who the players were, the big people in town, maybe he would have ruled a little differently. I think that's probably the case. He'd just been arrived in Oregon. He'd never been here before. He was appointed uh, Chief Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court by President Franklin Pierce, sort of a political reward for supporting Pierce during the election. He arrived, and within weeks, he decided this case. It was virtually the first case that he took up, and he criticized his predecessors for not, uh, not uh, deciding the case. But basically, it was a ruling that declared that slavery was unlawful in Oregon. And what's interesting, too, about the case is, is that the homes were promised their freedom if they helped Ford get established. After a certain period of time, he was going to release them. And he wanted to keep the children. Did you ever figure out why he wanted to keep the children? Oh, yeah. During the court record, there's quite a record of this case. Um, the whole whole record is in Polk County of, of the case. But his argument was, well, I raised these children. I provided them with food and clothing. Therefore, now that they're of an age where they can do some work, I'm entitled to the benefit of their labor. It didn't watch with Judge Williams, but that was <laughs> no, Ford's argument. Well, and they were also concerned that he was going to send them back to Missouri to be traded again. Is that right? Yeah, this was one of the threats that he made. Because before Robin Holmes filed suit against Ford, he actually appealed to Ford, I want my children back. And he was creating a furor about it, quite a fuss. And so in order to try and get Holmes off his back, Ford threatened to, to take the whole family and declare, return them to Missouri under the Fugitive Slave Act, of which the country had one, sadly. But it was, turned out to be an idle threat, but one that was made. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Oregon did have, they were considered a, a free state, but they did, they did wanted to ban African Americans from being in the state. Interesting story. Yeah, Oregon had three different exclusion laws in its history, including one in its constitution, which was enacted in 1857. Important to note, Oregon was the only free state admitted into the Union with an exclusion clause against blacks in its constitution. And while that clause was never enforced, it wasn't removed from the constitution by voters until 1926. This book is fascinating because you, you do cover the Holmes family, but there's so many other facets of the attitude towards slavery, slaves themselves that were in, in the territory. And let's talk to you about the exclusion law. That was in 1844, the exclusion law. And if I'm reading this correctly, that any free Negro or mulatto over the age of 18 may leave within two years and females within three years. Violators were severely whipped, thus calling the law the lash law. Was there whippings that happened? Well, we don't really know. I mean, but it would not be unreal to think that, or unreasonable to think that there were because it was, un it was common for slaves to be whipped in the South. 
And so Missouri slaveholders who brought slaves out presumably would treat them in Oregon as they treated them in Missouri, which probably would include whippings for recalcitrant behavior. But we don't know. Nobody was keeping record. And going back to what you mentioned a while ago, most of the slaves were brought out from Missouri in the very early years of the settlement of Oregon. And one reason some of the slaveholders did bring them was because they were entitled the large, large acreages of free land. If settlers would come to Oregon, settle in the Willamette Valley, they could get up to a square mile of free land. And so some of them wanted to bring slaves out with them to help them get started. And usually, in most cases, the arrangement was, well, if you help us start our farm, we will then give you your freedom. And this was an incentive for the slaves to come out. It wasn't so easy. In the case of Reuben Shipley, who was brought out by my ancestor, this meant he had to leave behind his wife and his two sons who were owned by other slaveholders. In the case of the Holmes, they had to leave behind three children who had been sold to other slaveholders. So it wasn't easy as just coming to Oregon, working for a while and getting your freedom. And then some like Ford kept the, the blacks for up to eight years in the case of, of the Holmes children. What did it take to do the research for this book? Well, the Oregon Historical Society is a <laughs> wonderful place for the research. But, the, but I started with a family genealogy because going back the decision to write about this story, my brother had mentioned this family, the slave brought out by an ancestor named Reuben Shipley. And so I was surprised I'd never heard the story before. And so he said, well, you can find it on page 356 of a family genealogy written by my grandparents. My grandparents had written about the slave being brought out by the Robert Shipley family. And I dedicate this book to my late grandparents, Minnie and Will Junkin, because they had basically made possible this story by recording this this. Uh, this history. Now, I had the, the, I, just as an as a anecdote, the genealogy is about three inches thick. <laughs> it came out in 1976, and I was given a copy. Now, I traveled around the world as a correspondent. I was a, a, a journalist for 40 years, so I carried this book with me to Puerto Rico, to Argentina, to Boston, to Washington, D.C., to New York, and never read it. Until my brother happened to mention. Well, how long ago was it that your brother told you? This was about three and a half, four years ago. <laughs> you're saying right. you're just now telling me this. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> he kept this from yeah. you. Well, and also I was reading, too, in your prologue, you, you start off with an apology to Billy Taylor, which is not his real name. Right. Tell us about that. Well, I can just remember in the summer of that year, whichever year it was, it was probably about 12, 13 this young fellow had moved into the neighborhood for the summer to stay with his grandparents, and he was from the South, like Virginia. I think he probably would. I don't remember his real name. But for some reason, we started to pick on him. You know, he wanted to be friends, and we were friends for a while. And then as, as kids do, this is not to, to excuse my behavior, but you can be pretty mean to, uh, to somebody coming in. And so he was from the South. And so we just found out a little bit about the Civil War and school and and the history of the war between the states. And uh, so we began to pick on him for his slave background, quote-unquote. And uh, we really made his life quite miserable during that summer. And uh, then when I realized what really had gone on in Oregon, that we had absolutely no reason to, be, uh, to feel any better than anybody else, I felt at least to do some sort of an apology at the start of the book was appropriate.
Was there any any big surprises that you found along the way doing this research? Yes. In in a way this was a uh this was a compensation for the lack of uh, of a realistic history of Oregon that I received in school. We're taught I'm a native of Oregon though I live much of my career away. I think I think we 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 study Oregon history in the fifth and sixth grades. I remembered nothing of this. I think at one point I had heard about the exclusion clause in the Constitution, but didn't really focus on it. But black slaves, this whole history, knew nothing about it. And so in a way, this is this was a surprise to me, that this is not something that's taught in our schools. And if one thing comes positive thing comes out of this book it will be to get some of the history in the schools where it belongs because we need to know all our history the bad as well as the good it, it's it's us and we need to know about this the only way you're going to know how to correct going forward is to know what mistakes you made in the past exactly and moving forward and it is tough it is some of these things to even you know reading through the book some of the my jaw dropped a little bit on some the behaviors the thought processes at that time. If you're just tuning in, this is Open Air. We're talking with Greg Noakes. He is the author of Breaking Chains, Slavery on Trial in the Oregon Territory. You know, it was a thing that was interesting, too, and there was a part in the book, at least for me, there was Obi and Abner Francis and how Thomas Dreyer, he was the Oregon Oregonian editor, editor at the time, that he, these were free, free black men that came and established business, were contributing to the society, good men, and there were people that went and spoke up for them and did not want them to have to leave the state. And what he wrote, because he wanted that bill abolished, the exclusion mm-hmm. law. And one thing that I found interesting, too, is because he wrote, they, meaning the blacks, have committed no crime. Why not make a law to exclude Irishmen, Chinamen, Italians, Englishmen, and all other foreigners? Such a law would be just as republic. It strikes me that this law would be a disgrace to Oregon. Repugnant. You're probably in that. There, thank you. He, um, but what was interesting about that is that those are still the same feelings and beliefs we have today. And I think maybe myself and people I've talked to thought that maybe everybody thought the same way. It was all one thought towards it. But to hear that people were fighting on behalf of and stepping up and seeing the disparity in basically in the racial inequality, even at that time, was really refreshing. Yeah, it was, they were kind of few and far between, though. They, it, it's interesting what's happened to politics. In those days, the Democratic Party was virtually the party of slavery throughout, throughout the country, particularly in the South. And the Democratic Party was the party in Oregon, and many of the early leaders were pro-slavery. And it's interesting to note that in 1857, when the Constitution for statehood was drawn up, the one most compelling issue was whether Oregon would or would not become a slave state. And people in Oregon actually voted in 1857 on whether Oregon should be a slave state, and they turned it down. But it's extraordinary to me that they actually had an election on that point. In that same election, they approved the exclusion clause in the Constitution that we talked about a few moments ago. But the Abner Francis story is particularly interesting because Abner and O.B. Francis, they were colleagues of Frederick Douglass, the uh, the black abolitionist in the East of some prominence. And so for your listeners, you might want to know there were three exclusion clauses in Oregon's history. There was one enacted in 1844, which had the Lash Law that you referenced a little while ago. Whether it was enforced or not, we don't know. But it was change in 1845. Lashing was done away with. There was another exclusion clause Exclusion law enacted in 1849, which wasn't repealed until 1854. 
And it was during that period that there was an attempt to exclude several blacks. One was successful. One was a fellow named Jacob Vanderpool was forced to leave. There was an attempt to force the Francis brothers out, too. Whoever was doing this had not realized how prominent they were in the black community. So Abner Francis actually wrote articles that appeared in Frederick Douglass' newspaper on what was going on in Oregon. And so the legislature sort of backed off at that period. And that was probably a factor in why the law was repealed. And then you had the third exclusion clause, which was in Oregon's Constitution. It's fascinating to me, this information. How long did it take you to put this together? When did you start? Well, let's see. I'm <laughs> not quite sure. <laughs> the research, I think, took two and a half years which is not bad, you know, for researching a history book. And in part, that was because the historical society had many records of, uh, of these issues. In other words, I'm not discovering exclusion clauses. You know, these were known and they were written about in the past. You had references to them in newspapers and historical documents. They'd just been forgotten. So in some sense, I'm an aggregator, bringing together articles from newspapers information from diaries, uh, information that appear on gravestones. There's one gravestone that actually has a, has a person listed as a slave. Old census records, an 1860 census, actually lists three people as slaves, even though slavery was abolished in Oregon or declared unlawful in Oregon. Two slaveholders had no compunction against listing their slaves as slaves, which is kind of interesting. So it's all this information that I gathered through my research and put it together, and we have the book. What are you hoping people take away from this? Well, I think a realistic look at history. Uh, we haven't met, talked much about my first book, Massacred for Gold, the Chinese in Hills Canyon. The treatment of the Chinese was not much different. I mean, Oregon's Constitution banned the Chinese from mining, from owning property. Uh, the, the country had an exclusion law enacted in 1882, banning Chinese from, from coming here. And then, of course, we have some awareness now, thanks to many good writers, on the mistreatment of Native Americans, you know, in our region. And so I think it's important to come to terms with our past and realize that it wasn't just white heroes who settled the West, but there were a lot of people trampled in the process, and so I think we need to have a realistic look at our history. That doesn't mean we can't appreciate where we are and what we've accomplished, but I think we need to know the scars and scar tissue we've left along the way. But where can we learn more about you and where can we find this book? You can find most bookstores. All the bookstores around here have it, Barnes & Noble, of course, Amazon. Um, any place we would normally buy books, you can probably find it. So, uh, yeah, I encourage people to buy it. Well, I really appreciate you coming in, and I appreciate the story. So looking back at this history and revisiting that, learning about, number one, being in awe of behaviors that happened and how we've grown, and hopefully we're learning from that and making the changes, but also it's a little disturbing that we don't talk about it as much as, you know, and you'd mentioned that as well. We don't, we're not as, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's, it's too soon. We just, if it, we don't talk about it, it's not there. I'm not sure what that, what that is. I guess we just don't want to look at the, the – we want to think heroically of ourselves in our past. I think that's what it is. You know, the white pioneers, the white settlers, and it's a great story. In fact, much of the history of the West was actually written in the East by people who really had little experience <laughs> in the West. And uh, so it, it's – and, you know, it's made good movies, you know, and to think that we did this all ourselves as white people, not realizing there were huge contributions by – 
immigrant Chinese and black trail guides and black fur trappers and others who are in this region. We just ignored their history just because we did we wanted to, I guess. Well, your book is not going to yeah. let us ignore it any longer. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate you coming in, Greg. And again, the book is Breaking Chains, Slavery on Trial in the Oregon Territory. Hey, thanks for listening to Open Air. I'd also like to thank my special guest, author Greg Noakes, joining us today to talk about his book, Breaking Chains, Slavery on Trial in the Oregon Territory. For more information about Greg and his work, please visit his website, Greg Noakes.com. Open Air is written, produced, and hosted by Don Newton. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.